For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. I still have a strong memory. The night of the North Carolina-Michigan final, I was covering, I believe it was a town council meeting in Oxford, Pennsylvania. It went on forever. And people were leaving, making jokes about getting home in time to watch the game. And I'm sitting there like, I don't care about all this zoning stuff. Like, how am I missing this, this game? And, you know, I ended up getting out and driving home super fast through, like, Amish country and caught, like, the last couple minutes. So it was one of those things where the idea of covering basketball and writing about basketball was, you know, would bring those things together. That was sports journalist, NBA writer, former editor of Slam Magazine, Russ Bankston. He's today's guest. Welcome to Dan Dickow's Quarantine Series on the Scorebook Live Today podcast. As the world, particularly the world of sports, is shut down due to the coronavirus, we're ramping things up a notch here at Scorebook Live. Every weekday, Dan interviews an expert in the world of sports, from star hoopers and coaches like Steve Kerr, Jamal Crawford, and Doug Christie, to seven-time Mr. Olympia bodybuilder Phil Heath. We hope you're entertained and maybe learn a thing or two as we navigate these uncertain times. The easiest way to tune in is by subscribing. In addition to our weekly Washington High School Sports News and Conversation podcast released Thursdays, hosted by myself, Andy Bueller, fellow reporter Todd Millis, Dan is bringing you interviews just like this one, delivered five days a week. Head to wherever you get your podcast, subscribe for free, and while you're there, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Before we get to Dan's interview today, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Washington Federal. Washington Federal is a local bank and portfolio lender with more than 200 branches across eight states, more than 32,000 fee-free ATMs, 24-7 online and mobile banking with drive-up ATMs. And Washington Federal is a proud sponsor of Scorebook Live. They care deeply about high school sports and the communities that support them across the entire state of Washington. Head to wfdbank.com to learn how they can help you meet your financial goals. That's wafdbank.com. Washington Federal, a neighbor you can count on. We hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. We're just as excited for high school sports to return as you are. Now, Dan Dickow. Dan Dickow, Scorebook Live, Washington Today, our podcast during our quarantine series. Typically, once a week, we bring you uh, a breakdown of the high school sports scene in the state. But over these uncertain times across the world and in the nation, uh, we're, we're up in our game. We're bringing you an interview, a conversation with an expert in the field of sports. It could be a player, a coach, a front office executive, a broadcaster. Today, we've got a journalist, somebody who I have read a lot of his articles uh, in the past. I've read a lot of his recent articles on Complex. He's got a really unique perspective on the sports world, and, and he's – uh, somebody that I'm excited to talk to, and that is none other than, than Russ Bankston. Russ, 
appreciate you joining. Where are you at these days during these uh, uncertain times? And thanks for joining. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm actually right now out on Eastern Long Island or, well, back in my parents' house, back in the, the old childhood room for the moment. So um, yeah, interesting times all around here. Yeah, you're obviously, um, people won't be able to see this because we've released the audio of our conversation, but you say you're in your childhood home, your childhood bedroom. I can see behind you, you've got a Michael Jordan jersey, you've got a Kobe jersey. You're no different than, than anybody else in these time and days, uh, reminiscing about the unfortunate passing of Kobe Bryant a few months ago, and, and I'm sure reminiscing on all the good times that Michael Jordan brought you through watching The Last Dance over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been an interesting time all around. And it's like, you know, I think as we all sort of get used to this new reality for the time being, and, you know, I could see the shoe behind you. I mean, we're all kind of turning our spaces into, uh, you know, makeshift podcast studios or, uh, you know, for various video purposes. Um, and yeah, I mean, right now with no live sports going on, all we can do really is look back to what's happened. And, you know, it's been interesting following the last dance because it's sort of taking that 98 finals and Jordan's entire championship run and, you know, sort of rerunning it in the present day because it's as close as we can get right now to uh, actual live NBA action. It's brought some unbelievable memories for me um, watching those games. Um, thinking back to watching it, then going out in my driveway and trying to recreate some of, some of the plays. Uh, I'm actually, Scorebook Live, we're going to be releasing a contest for who can do the best job of recreating the shot with Jordan over Elo. And unfortunately, I had Elo on our, on our podcast last week, and I interviewed him, and I, I forgot to challenge him to that uh, <laughs> if he wanted to try to guard it one last time. <laughs> I think I think once was enough for Craig. I don't know. I'm sure it was. But what a lot of people probably don't realize is he made the go-ahead bucket for the Cavs, and it looked like he was going to win the game for him. Lo and behold, Jordan hits that shot and propels him uh, and the Bulls to, to start their ascension to beat the Pistons and then become the dynasty that they were. You grew up, as you mentioned, Long Island, just outside New York City. Um, were you a huge Knicks fan or were you mesmerized by the Bulls like most people? I actually wasn't a Knicks fan. I, I did I did become a Bulls fan early, um, you know, with Jordan's arrival. It's funny, like, I try and figure out, like, did Air Jordan make me a Bulls fan or was it the other way around? And I can't really separate the two. You know, I was like 14 years old when the first Air Jordan released and when, when Mike ended up with the Bulls. So, um I definitely remember watching a lot of Bulls games early because of WGN. You know, they had that superstation where you could actually watch Bulls games outside of the Chicago area. Um, I remember listening to games on the radio, you know. Um, and one of my really close friends in high school, he was a huge Dominique Wilkins fan. I was a Jordan fan. So basically every year in high school, we would – get together enough money to take the train into Madison Square Garden and see the Bulls play the Hawks. I mean, the Knicks play the Hawks and the Knicks play the Bulls. And, uh, you know, usually win or lose, those guys would put on a show in that building. Absolutely. Those were, were two absolute uh, guys that when I was growing up as well, I, I kind of stopped what I was doing to, to watch those games. So you grow up and you become a big Bulls fan. 
most kids want to become an athlete and, and I can imagine it was the same for you, but for, for most people, their dreams end up stopping and they got to go to the real world. Um, how did you take your love of sports and then kind of transplant them into becoming a journalist and getting the gig with Slam Magazine right when Slam was becoming, you know, the most current and kind of hot magazine for the, the sport of basketball? Yeah, I mean, I knew pretty early on athletics wasn't going to be the way for me. Um, you know, I wasn't that great in high school. I, I played a ton once I got to college, just pickup and stuff. So, you know, that was probably where I peaked as a basketball player, which was a low peak. Um, you know, and I, I guess my senior year of high school, I kind of got into the the school paper was kind of like, um, you know, buffaloed into that where it's like all right this is what I'm gonna do this year and I'd been into writing for as long as I can remember so you know I went to college to study journalism at the University of Delaware which had a, uh, a tw and still has a twice weekly paper that's all student run so you know that was just a real sort of jump right into the deep end way of getting into that um and then I guess to fast forward a little bit, you know, once I graduated, I started with a small newspaper and uh, on a late night trip to a grocery store, I saw Slam on the newsstand, the first issue with Larry Johnson on the cover. And I just stood there flipping through it. And, you know, it's one of those moments where it's like, man, this is like kind of everything I'm into all in one place. Like, how do I get involved with this you know i don't want to keep going <laughs> i still have a strong memory the night of the north carolina michigan final i was covering i believe it was a town council meeting in oxford pennsylvania and it went on forever and people were leaving making jokes about getting home in time to watch the game and i'm sitting there like oh, i don't care about all this zoning stuff like how am i missing this this game and you know i ended up getting out and driving home super fast through like amish country and caught like the last couple minutes so it was one of those things where the idea of covering basketball and writing about basketball was you know would bring those things together and uh this being the mid 90s i sent them faxes until they finally agreed to let me write something for them and it's sort of built from there. You know, I'd pestered them enough that when a spot opened up to be a full-time editor there, I was the person they contacted. I love that story. And actually, I have that Larry Johnson slam cover still to this day. I, I collected a lot of slams early on until, unfortunately, I'll share this with you later on. I had a little bit of mishap early in my NBA career, my rookie year, and made a comment about Slam Magazine in the wrong circles. And it came back to bite me for about two years. Uh, but I love the, the fact that you stuck to it because you believed in it, that you wanted to be a part of it. And it also goes back and shows you the, the technology difference. You were sending oh, it God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And beyond that, you know, it's like, I guess by the time I actually started to get in touch with them, I had left the weekly paper and was writing for this like monthly entertainment thing in Delaware. And, uh, paychecks were sporadic let's just say that and every month i would kind of get used to picking which utility i would get cut off and uh 
I think at one point, like I didn't have cable and I, my phone bill lapsed. So like when Slam went to call me about the full-time gig, my phone had been shut off. So they ended up FedExing me something to be like, dude, we want to talk to you. Like, what are you doing? And I picked it up. Like, I think I was cleaning stuff out of that apartment because I was getting ready to move right before Christmas. And I get this FedEx and uh, with like an edit test and some other stuff. So I did it kind of over the break. And instead of moving to the apartment where I thought I was going to move, I had to move back to New York to take this job with Slam. That's awesome. Those are some great stories about how somebody who's had success in your industry, in your world, uh, has had to kind of overcome some obstacles and, and kind of grind their way out to, to get to a position that, or a job that they want to have. I think that's a great story and lesson for our listeners to hear. Your time at Slam, there were a lot of really good articles written by you, some of your other authors. Is there one article that you look back and say, that was my masterpiece when I was at Slam? I, most athletes can look back at one or two games and say the same kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's hard. You know, it's like I feel like there were a few. And the one that gets brought up all the time that I hear about, and it's mostly through the photos rather than the actual story, but um, the Allen Iverson Soul on Ice, like, Afro cover. Uh, um, you know, that always gets mentioned as being the slam cover. And I was fortunate enough to be able to write that. I believe it was the first cover story I wrote for them. So um, it was one of those things, you know, Alan was doing stuff with Reebok. I ended up driving around with him in a limo going to like um, sneaker. I think we went to like Models headquarters in New York um, and maybe one other, you know, uh, industry spot. And then from there out to the airport in Teterboro so he could fly somewhere else. And at Teterboro, they got, someone got me a car back to the city and another writer went with them on the flight to wherever. So, um, you know, that one stands out just, just in part because like, you know, this was 99, like Alan was already kind of that cultural icon that, you know, he's, he remains, but he hadn't been an all-star yet. You know, he, he still hadn't, had that on-court success that everyone kind of was anticipating for him. Um, and I guess if I can do like a podium of these, um, I did a KG cover story like a year later and we went to his house in Minnesota and I went with Jonathan Mannion, who is, you know, known for shooting a bunch of covers for Rockefeller. He shot the Jay-Z Reasonable Doubt cover and like I think everyone after that um but you know on that trip he showed kevin all these things that he'd shot and like kevin garnett who was at that point already kevin garnett was shook kind of by the idea that like holy shit this guy shot like all these album covers and uh, i remember him being blown away by dmx and jonathan offered to call dmx and put him on the phone with him and kg was like no 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 like don't do that like he just wasn't ready for it. Um, and then if I, a, a third one is I did a story on Paul Pierce. And I went to interview him for the basketball camp of all things. And for whatever reason, my recorder didn't work or I forgot it. I, it was one of those two things. So I literally had to write down everything he said as best as I could recall. And for whatever reason, it actually turned out 
well. Like it was one of those situations where it was ultimate nightmare, but it worked out in the end. Yeah, those are those are three iconic players for sure. Uh, Iverson uh, was in, an impossible cover for me. KG was an unbelievable competitor. And then I had a chance to be teammates with Paul for, for a short stint in Boston before I got hurt. And, and those three, absolutely, I, I remember reading stories on those guys. You mentioned, though, the photography in Slam along with the, the articles. It kind of melded together like nothing had ever been done before. I mean, I grew up reading Sports Illustrated, Sport Magazine, but Slam was different. You guys kind of molded uh, the new wave of basketball with uh, cutting edge articles and photography and kind of molded it in with hip hop. You've also transformed your career to doing some writing for, for GQ magazine and complex. I guess the, the, where I want to go with this question is how do you mold all those things together? Because basketball has always seemed to go really well with hip hop and music and you've kind of transformed your career to be a part of both of them. Yeah, you know, I think like, uh, to go back to the photographers for a minute, I, I think part of the reason Slam's photography works so well is we didn't always hire guys who specialize in shooting sports. You know, I mean, obviously nothing against Sports Illustrated because they've had incredible photography and guys like Walter Yost and uh, Neil Liefer and, you know, even the NBA photographers like Nat Butler and Andy Bernstein, you know, they do incredible work. But I think also at Slam, we were able to bring in guys like Jonathan Mannion, who shot, you know, Jay-Z and album covers, and Atiba Jefferson, who got his start shooting skateboarding. You know, they would bring this sort of new eye to things. And maybe they would shoot a guy in a way that a traditional basketball photographer wouldn't think of. And, you know, I kind of look at it the same way with writing, where it's, if you can come at something from a different perspective than people otherwise would, you know, you kind of have a chance to maybe fill a lane a different way. You know, there's a million people. I mean, the last thing I wrote was about watches for GQ and there's a ton of people out there who write about watches, but I think there's something valuable in coming at it from an angle that maybe the people who traditionally write about watches don't. And I guess, you know, that, that's part of why Slam worked, especially early on, because we weren't people who necessarily always wrote about basketball. You know, I, I covered high school games back when I was in high school, but, you know, I wasn't coming at it as a beat writer who'd spent the last 20 years in locker rooms, you know, asking Patrick Ewing, like, well, talk about the fourth quarter. You know, we were coming at it from a different way. You guys absolutely came at it in a different way. And, and now I need to share my slam story and why. I, I think I remember as, this. I think I remember this. I, I became known as, I believe it was Disaster Dan in the slam. <laughs> because slam used to have a website where they'd have a blog. And it would be different links to stories throughout the, the, the basketball world. And, and it always, I would look at it every couple of days. And there would always be a mention about something I don't necessarily remember it always being negative, but the, the, the term disaster Dan was always there and it was referencing me. So my rookie year, I'm with the Atlanta Hawks. It's our first regular season uh, road trip. We're playing the New Jersey Nets in the old dump, East Rutherford, New Jersey, or wherever it was. It was an awful arena. I even yeah. knew that as a rookie in the NBA. It was bad. And 
it, this was a time where Gonzaga still wasn't Gonzaga on the national scene. So if Slam does a top 25 ranking now, Gonzaga is probably top 10, whatever, maybe. We right. were still not really known. So I kind of was always upset that Slam never gave Gonzaga when I was there any type of credibility. Never got an article, you know, never really got mentioned outside of maybe the, the 25th best team in the country. And so I'm in the, in the locker room after pregame warmups where guys are getting uh, almost ready to get going out, finish their, start their team meeting right before the, the media gets locked out of the locker room and they're done. And there was a couple slam magazines in the locker room. And I think Jason Terry tossed me one and, and made a joke. And I'm pretty sure he knew what was going on at the time. And I said, man, I can't stand slam. They, they, don't, they don't like Gonzaga. They, they're hating on us or something like something to that extent. And JT had this look on his face that he must have caught me. And I must have been like, uh-oh, did I say something wrong? And I just kind of stopped the conversation at that point. Well, lo and behold, obviously, come to find out, I said that comment with a writer from Slam in our locker room at that time. And it must have got back to your guys' offices because from that time on, I was known as Disaster Dan until I had a little bit of a nice run with New Orleans a few years later. Well, we had, I mean, you know, we did have something of an Atlantic connection because Lang Whitaker, who works for the Grizzlies now, he was with Slam and he's from Atlanta. And uh, I'd actually gone out to Atlanta to do a story on J.R. Ryder when he was reaching the end of the rope with that team and happened to be there literally the day he got cut. Um, and that was sort of my first experience with Lang and like, actually might have been my first experience with Jason Terry too. I think he was a rookie that year. So uh, the funny part about that story was all the talk was about JR being such a terrible influence on the Hawks and like, you know, on young guys. Meanwhile, his locker was right between Deion Glover and Jason Terry, who were their two rookies. So it's like, well, if he's a bad influence, why do you have him with your first round picks? But that's a whole separate thing. <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting locker room dynamics, and I'm sure uh, you've got a lot of head scratchers over the time of, of talking to guys to understand being curious why certain guys or lockers are next to others. What about the fact that you've been, you've interviewed people in all facets of hip hop. You've interviewed, you know, uh, all facets of, of athletes. Who's the most down to earth athlete or celebrity that celebrity that you've ever interviewed? It's a tough call. I mean, there, there's a lot of guys, you know, and it's like, for for everyone who sort of comes up with like a a canned answer, I think you get a lot of guys who are who are straight with everything. And like, you know, to go back, like that's what I loved about Iverson. You know, Iverson was so unfiltered and so like if you asked him something, he would answer it honestly. You know, like again, I go back to the fact that he wasn't an all-star yet. I asked him like if he could be any other NBA player but himself, who would he want to be? And he picked Sprewell. You know, and it's like, dude, you're you're like in your second year in the league. Like, Spree, obviously, I think at that point was already a bit of a pariah. And it's like, he's the guy you name. Like, you could go the safe route and say MJ, even though I guess he had retired at that point. But, you know, there were a million options he could have taken. And uh, that was the way he went. It's just like, this is amazing. Like, I respect you an untold amount for saying this. Um, and, another, you know, Another guy from that draft, you know, Stefan Marbury was always cool. And he was always like, 
honest to the point where it probably hurt him sometimes. You know, I, I, I have sort of beef with Bill Simmons, the sports guy, going way back to when he was the Boston sports guy. And a lot of it stemmed from the fact that, you know, he made a point about like, well, I don't go to locker rooms or whatever else. But he would talk about Marbury about how, oh, Steph doesn't care about winning. And I'm like, I'm in those New Jersey Nets home locker rooms after almost every game. And if you talk to Steph after a night when he scores 30 and they lose, he's kind of despondent. If you talk to him after a game when he has 15 and the Nets win, he's all happy. Like, I didn't see that at all. Like, I felt like that was just like a, a cheap shot. That's, uh, that's a great story about Stephon Marbury. I just w- recently watched uh, the documentary that uh, is on him, a kid from Coney Island, and, and I thought it was great. Uh, it shared a lot of those kind of things that you're just talking about, about how much he cared about winning. And maybe he was a little bit more misunderstood than quite a few other players during his time frame because he was pretty darn good. Uh, I, I think also, though, I, I think it's interesting, like, you know, to talk to you and coming at it from your side, like, I can only imagine what it's like. And I guess, you know, maybe I didn't even appreciate it as much in the beginning where it's like, if you have a rough night, and all of a sudden you have like eight guys around you asking you what happened, like, it's hard to answer that, especially every day. Um, you know, I know, like, someone like Antoine Walker, and th- there was a moment with him that really stood out where we were just talking before a game. I think this was in Jersey too. And we're just talking about whatever. It's like me, him and Pierce. And like, I knew those guys a little bit cause I'd been around them enough. And we're just talking about whatever. And all of a sudden I realized like, there's only five minutes left of locker room time or whatever. And it's like, Twan, you know, do you mind if I ask you, I forget what story I was working on, but something. And he's like, no, it's cool. So I flip on my recorder and put it up and ask him this question. And you could see the exact moment where his eyes just like shut off. Like he just, he went from being animated and looking at me and talking to like just picking a spot on the wall and staring at it and giving this answer about whatever it was I had asked him about. And it's like, oh, he's in like professional mode right now. Like the conversation part has ended. Absolutely, I've seen that many times. Um, Myself personally, I was never in that position in the NBA simply because you know, I, I was never on any good enough teams that had a media following or I never had, you know, a, a moment where I made a big shot in a playoff game or anything like that. But I, I have seen it from other guys where, unfortunately, you know, they kind of recycle a lot of the same phrases. Um, but I think enough people in the media and enough people who follow it understand, look, these guys are doing it 82 times a year, more if it's in the playoffs. And if these guys are the face of the franchise – uh, they're going to be asked the same questions over and over again. But I think yeah. that's what makes a lot of the – I think it make, it's what makes the superstars who understand their responsibility and try to break out of that mold as best as possible. I think that's what endears a lot of them uh, to their fan bases. I look at like a Damian Lillard right now mm. would kind of fit that profile where, yeah, he'll have days where I've read he kind of has the coin phrases, but then he also breaks out and he shares enough of himself – and enough true thought to really connect with a lot of people. Well, yeah, and, and you, would, you would, like, give guys leeway, you know, especially the superstars, you know, whether it's Jordan and Kobe getting dressed before they would answer questions and not doing pregame or, like, you know, Kevin Garnett was always the last guy out. You would wait an hour after a game, if not more, for KG. But you knew when he came out he was going to be great. 
So you put up with it. Last question before I let you go, and I really appreciate your time. Following some of the things that you've written uh, and from Slam as well as now with Complex, you've got a big focus on sneakers. Um, and I, I, I would imagine, without putting words in your mouth, you would consider yourself a sneakerhead. With the last yeah. dance going on, what is, what is your favorite pair of Jordans? And then what is your just favorite shoe in general? Those are tough questions. Um, you know, it's funny to go back a second. Like part of the reason I wanted to work for Slam was I thought of that as a way like, ooh, I can actually talk to sneaker companies and maybe get stuff from them. Like <laughs> this seemed like a, a really, a really, you know, good thing to do. Um, I always say my favorite Jordans and I are probably the twos. Um, those were the first Jordans I ever got. And just the idea that they were made in Italy and didn't have a swoosh, like they were just so different from anything else back then. Um, you know, and back in like 88 when I got them, like I literally wore them until the soles fell off. I mean, I remember wearing them even after like the whole things had fallen apart. Um, and, you know, it, it's tough because Jordans are still probably my favorite shoes. So, you know, that probably doubles up as my favorite shoe ever. Um, unfortunately, I don't feel like the retros have ever really measured up to the originals. Like the idea that I, I don't know whether it's just different materials or the fact that the originals were made in Italy and obviously retros aren't. So every time a retro of that shoe comes out, I'm just like, it's not the same. Can't do this. Um, but it's one of those things also where if you ask me tomorrow, I might have an entirely different answer. There's just too many. There's too many things out there. There are too many great pairs of Jordans and too, too many really good pairs of shoes right now. Uh, my pick would be the Jordan 11s. I don't think you can beat those, uh, whether they're the all whites, whether the original white with the black patent leathers or just the blacks with the, the bright red along the bottom. So, Russ, I, I, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I bought those black and red ones when they came out. I think those were, those might have been the first pair of Jordans I ever paid like full price for everything else before that I was able to get on sale at the end of the cycle. And, uh, I kept those for, man, I don't even know. I probably had them for at least 10 years and I could never bring myself to wear them. Like they were too cool to wear. I would take them out of the box every once in a while and like try them on, but I just never wore them outside. And I eventually ended up selling them cause I'm like, I'm just not going to wear these. They're too cool to wear. Yeah. They were too cool and they were too, I don't necessarily know if beautiful is the right word to describe a shoe, but they were absolutely beautiful. So they were. Russ, they were. I absolutely appreciate your time. Um, I, I look forward to continuing to follow you on Twitter as well as going back in the archives now and, and reading some of those slam articles that you mentioned, as well as continuing to read some of the stuff on complex that I've read, read recently. So we appreciate it. Thanks for joining and stay safe back on the East coast. Thank you, Dan. You too. Take care. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.